You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Today's quote is from Adrienne Marie Brown, who wrote an amazing book called Pleasure Activism. She says, quote, Ultimately, pleasure activism is us learning to make justice and liberation the most pleasurable experiences we can have on this planet. I mean, and I would like to make public speaking an act of pleasure activism. Welcome to Permission to Speak, the podcast about how we talk and how we get ourselves heard with me, Samara Bay. Today's guest is Katherine Kinsler. She's a professor of psychology at University of Chicago, who was also the chair of the psychology department at Cornell for a few years and a Fulbright scholar in Paris. And she's the author of a new book called How You Say It, why you talk the way you do, and what it says about you. I obviously wanted to have her on as soon as I heard about the book, and then I read it, and it is fantastic. She manages to give an overview of every major study at the intersection of linguistics and psychology about how we speak and how we listen without in any way sounding academic or like it's a bunch of studies. Um, And really, instead, the book has this really compelling, (laughs) I think, um, argument that each of us, A, has an accent, hello, and B, that actually our own unique way of pronouncing sounds and all the subtle markers of where we've been and where we're going is, as she says, a window into who we are. We also take this opportunity to talk about accent bias, which is real, real. And uh, we talk about some really wildly distressing data and stories like Trayvon Martin's friend, who he was on the phone with at the time of his murder, who testified at uh, his killer's trial and was just not heard. 
And we talk about our options. We talk about our way out. We talk about what we should be teaching our kids. And why kids are so cool to study, which is what Katherine Kinsler actually does in the lab and online. And, you know, if you're listening and you have a kid, we even have info on how to enroll your kid if you're interested. This is Katie Kinsler. Welcome, Katie. Um, Are you teaching these days? I'm doing a little bit of teaching, but remotely. Um, And then I work a lot with graduate students and I have a lab. So I, you know, I run a psychology lab and we test kids. And so we've actually moved it all online. um, And it's been fascinating because we have all these families signing up to join our studies and it's all virtual. Um, And it's working in a way that it wouldn't have worked a year ago. I think that, you know, prior to now, parents would be kind of freaked out with this idea of my kid's going to go online and you're going (laughs) to ask them questions and we're going to record it. You know, now they're kind of like, please entertain my child for 30 minutes. (laughs) I mean, it's literally safer to go online and participate in a study than like use a playground. Yeah, and I think for the kids, they're getting so remarkably talented at any virtual form of communication in a way that's, you know, I think mind-boggling to adults, um, or at least to me. You know, I have a a six-year-old who was on a Zoom call with two friends, and then she manages to take a screenshot of the three of them talking and draw on it to make it more beautiful and upload it as her virtual Zoom background. (laughs) And I didn't teach her that. And I'm just, you know, thinking, oh, she's native in Zoom technology. Yeah. So, and they all are, right? Yeah. Um, Has it actually, um, has this new, you know, virtual way of doing things actually affected the studies themselves that you're working on or have you had to adapt? Yeah. So... There's certainly some constraints and some things we could do in person that are harder online, but looking to the future, you know, in many ways, it actually opens up, I think, a lot of possibilities in that it's so important to think about getting a more diverse sample of people participating in research. And so when it's online, it doesn't have to just be people who are, you know, local in Chicago or who are comfortable coming into a university community. Um, Of course, there's going to be some equity issues and who has access to internet or, you know, the space and time to talk with you. But I think it actually might be a way to increase the diversity of our participant base, which is, you know, exciting and something I think that's really important. Your book, I want to start with a quote. Um, You said, uh, linguistic bias is completely culturally acceptable in a way that racial bias is not. Many parents feel uncomfortable with any expression of race-based preference, but when their children express a preference based on the way someone speaks, they are not as concerned. I want to know how you came to write this book and even more so why it didn't already exist. Yeah. So, you know, when we look out in the world, there's so many social group divisions. We're all so aware of this. Um, Race, gender, nationality, political affiliation, we could go on and on. Mm -hmm. But one thing that we use to, you know, as you know well, to connect with people in a good way, but then also to really divide ourselves and to judge people and to be judged by others is about our speech. And I just think 
we're so unaware of this um, as a society about the way that our speech works to structure our social lives and how much bias and prejudice can exist against people based on how they sound. And so I just think it's so important for people to think about. And why do you think this book didn't already exist or something you know, that covers this topic. Partly, I think the answer is in how interdisciplinary you are and it requires one to be. But I wonder if, you know, did you see that there was a real void and then you were like, wait, how is it possible? Or does it make sense, I guess, that this is sort of always flown under the radar, you know? So I think part of it is this cultural flying under the radar. And I think that's a real thing. And I do hope that that will change and that people will become aware of linguistic prejudice in society. Now, I could give you somewhat of the academics response, which is that I'm trained as a psychologist and I study developmental and social psychology. And at least within the field of psychology, which is often the field that, you know, we have a lot of studies about bias and implicit biases and people's conscious and less conscious thinking about racism and, you know, the kinds of studies that are really informative when we're thinking about intergroup bias. A lot of that is in social psychology, but all the more language stuff in psychology tends to be in other areas. So there's, you know, language is such a fundamental part of psychology, of course, but it's often about language processing and language acquisition and more this cognitive language for language's sake, as opposed to Mm -hmm. language and social psychology. And so it's almost this weird gap in the field. And then I, so I was thinking about this and I was working on this problem. And then I started reading more and more neighboring fields. And then you get into different aspects of linguistics, uh, psycholinguistics, sociolinguistics, you see linguistic anthropology. There's a lot of relevant research in economics and education, you know, and other policy oriented fields. And so it, it felt to me like, one book that tried to draw in all these different fields might be the best way to tackle this problem. I mean, you know, as somebody who's a dialect coach, to to, to find a book that basically says that accent, A, is something every single person has, mm-hmm. and B, is so foundational to how uh, we are treated in the world or how we are perceived that we all miss it is a very satisfying book to have found, <laughs> you know? And then, you know, I have to say also, as a layperson, mm. uh, I I really just want to, like, shout out. There isn't even a question attached to this, although you're welcome to pick up whatever you want from it. But I really want to shout out that I believe you just gave everyone who read this book a um, a survey on all of the important studies in sociolinguistics and in these related, um, you know, intersecting fields, but in no way made it sound like that. Like you weren't like, and another important study, you really just like held our hand and said, here's what we know. And here's what people have been wondering. Well, thanks. That's lovely to hear. Um, And, you know, I'm so excited to be talking to a dialect coach also (laughs) now because, I mean, people are always asking me questions about this field. And though it feels so related to the questions that I study, but yet it's not a field that I'm very familiar with myself. You know, it's really different from my academic exercises. So I feel like this connection is so exciting. It's super cool. I mean, there's definitely just a few moments in your book where you talk about like, you know, A, 
changing up your accent, especially Mm -hmm. when English is your second language, is wildly difficult to do, which I want to talk more about. But B, you know, some of the people who do it are actors and actually see that there is this there's this sort of two-sided reaction that people have when they hear, for example, Hugh Laurie speaking in his actual British mm-hmm. accent after you've seen yeah. the TV show right. House. And the two the two different feelings are, one, like, I'm so impressed, and two, mm-hmm. I feel a little like he betrayed me. Yeah, exactly. It feels like it's the superhuman feat because it's not what we typically do. And then you start recategorizing and saying, wait, you know, I thought he was this guy I knew and now I don't know him anymore. Right. Well, okay. So it is about linguistic bias, but even before that, it's, there is such a lovely argument in this book that how we talk or language is so, there's this quote here I have, it's so critical to feelings of identity that when you speak, you let a little bit of yourself out for the world to interpret. And I think it's so important and it's so hard to talk. I mean, part of what's been fascinating about having this podcast is that I I do sometimes feel like I have to sort of shine a light on the fact that we can even talk about the voice before we can then also talk about the voice. Mm -hmm. Because it's so invisible, because it flies Mm -hmm. under the radar. And yet, you know, as you say, the way you talk is a window into who you are. There's so there's so much research and there's so much about how much our identity comes out and how we sound. And I actually would love to talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg as an example of what I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Would you tell us about this study and what <laughs> sure. and what we've learned? It's so it's so it's a bit counterintuitive, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So on your broader point about your speech letting out a bit about who you are, I think it does so in two ways. So one is that, as I'm sure we can talk about more, it's so hard to learn a non-native language or a non-native accent into adulthood. So in that sense, when we speak, we're often showing people who the voices were who were talking to us when we were children. But then the other thing it does is it your language does shift to some extent across your life. And as you know, right, you know, you're teaching people and helping people work on changes. And so your voice also shows your aspirations and who you want to be and who you're with now, not just who you were with then. And so it's really kind of these two facets, I think, about it. So when we think about the Ruth Bader Ginsburg example, linguists charted her speech over time and find some really interesting aspects of her speech coming through. So, you know, she grew up and had uh, some, you know, New York or Brooklyn features in her language, such as dropping the R at the end of a word. So, you know, mother, mother, something like that, leaving the R at the end, um, leaving off the R. We can think of Bernie Sanders yes, as uh, as like an you know, extreme example of some of these <laughs> yes. sounds. Yeah. Yes. And so the interesting thing was that she'd been in D.C. for a while and So first of all, she wasn't immersed in this Brooklyn speech. And also the the dialect itself is shifting a little bit in New York. So that was more true a generation ago than it is today. The R dropping and then also some, they call it some vowel raising. So um, 
coffee, the oil sound, with the oil yeah. sound, yeah, right? coffee so talk, exactly. exactly, right. So those two features, you can hear that those are really um, stereotypical, you know, stereotypically thought of as this New York accent. Now, what's interesting about Ruth Bader Ginsburg is that she grew up in that community, but then for a long time, when you look at when linguists listen to recordings of her arguing prior in court, prior to becoming a Supreme Court justice. They don't hear those New York features. It's as if she's hyper-correcting her speech. She's really trying to sound more, you know, more what people might see of, think of as proper. And then it's only in the later years when she's a justice that you start to see this voice from her childhood coming out again. And so in some ways, I really think it's a sign that she feels like she's made it. She's comfortable with herself and with her voice. And so she doesn't need to correct uh, in the same way. There's such a lesson there for all of us, right? And and it's also complicated. I mean, yeah. one thing that I think is so useful about that story is that sometimes I think about formal versus informal speech and formal versus yeah. informal situations, but that what I learned from that is there's actually this much more important lens than just looking at the context, which is, mm-hmm. are do you have something to prove? Yeah. Are you being evaluated Mm -hmm. in that moment? And then, you know, to bring it into all of our lives, there is this element of if we're being evaluated and our natural instinct is to overcorrect, as you say, Mm -hmm. um, when can we not do that? Is that, that you know, at what point is it it about like when in our own lives do we feel like we Mm -hmm. don't have anything to prove anymore or... Is there something about like there being a kind of a revolutionary act in um, just teaching people that like you can sound, you know, non-standard and still be taken seriously? But, you know, then the problem is sometimes you aren't. Right. And I think both of those things are true. So a lot of it is that probably, you know, your relationship with your voice is a lot about self-acceptance. You know, there's all these linguistic studies about people who speak in a way that other people feel is non-standard and they can feel very insecure about the way they speak. At the same time, the flip side of that is I hope we're approaching some education where we can actually realize this hidden source of prejudice and bias and become more aware of it. And then in that sense, more people, you know, as you're trying to do, can feel comfortable in their voices. Well, yeah. And especially because it makes me think about like, um, you know, when we don't have anything to prove anymore. Sure. When when does that happen exactly? And, yeah, and if we're, you know, ambitious or if we're we're always moving forward or upward or whatever, metaphor you want to use, then like in a way, maybe we're always finding ourselves in new positions where we have to prove ourselves. And we can't just always be like sort of chasing like someday I'll be myself, Mm -hmm. especially because there's this added complicating thread, which is that often people who really create these magical moments to capture a society, I mean, I'm talking, I'm thinking specifically of of AOC's speech uh, the other week um, mm, in Congress. Yeah. But, you know, there are these there are these moments when people sound more like themselves than you're than you expect, given the formality of the context. Yeah. And then it becomes really poignant. Yeah. And often they become leaders, right? Part of, I think, what's valuable about the conversation you're having in the book and that I'm having on the podcast is this idea of we can't all just fall back on these safe tropes of um, the room makes me scared so I will hide myself or, you know, 
we won't find our own leadership and we won't find, we won't have like, you know, this, our society won't move forward the way we actually all want it to. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah, that definitely resonates and finding this authentic self, which is very vulnerable. In fact, actually, I'd love you to talk about, you You very honestly referenced your feeling of being conflicted about upspeak. Yeah. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> and vocal fry. I mean, they're both yeah. mentioned and actually uh-huh. they're both really relevant, uh, really as practical sort of um, examples of what we're talking about. Do, would yeah. you, do you want to talk about sure. this? Sure. Yeah, I'll talk about. So, um, so this is where I talk about how often, you know, language changes over time and often it's adolescents and in particular, even adolescent women who are changing the language. And so, you know, new features come out. And adolescents are kind of fighting against the old guard. And so, you know, another facet of that is that old people always don't like the way that young people speak. But when they were young, someone didn't like the way that they spoke. And so that's kind of a recurring cycle of human nature. So upspeak um, or uptalk is ending sentences in a question. And so, you know, kind of some people might call it a valley girl kind of speak. Um, you know, I was a teenager in the 90s. And so I think of the movie Clueless as one reference point that I give. We're definitely um, contemporaries, by the way. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I find myself slipping into that sometimes. And I hear it in my students. And the, pro- the complexity is that there's no good or bad way of speaking. It doesn't, it's not, you know, there's nothing that has to be good or bad about a particular intonation. And so I don't want to judge it because I because I know that. At the same time, if I find myself slipping into it, it gets really complicated because it originated, you know, often it's women doing it. It sort of gets mixed into this notion of maybe a sexist notion that a woman doesn't know what she's saying, something like that. And so it's really, you know, it's a tough one that I struggle with in my own voice. And then you point out beautifully um, in the book that uh, that it's complicated by the fact that not only did you grow up with this, but also yeah. as a result, a lot of role models, a lot of the icons that we all grew up with also speak this way. Yeah. And I think, you know, vocal fry is interesting. I think that that tends to to be a little bit younger or, you know, not so much, say, when we were in high school. Um, So this is kind of ending, you know, adding this kind of uh, like a growly sort of feature to the end of your words or to some vowels. And um, what's interesting is that adults really don't like it. But one paper polled a bunch of college students somewhat recently, a few years ago, and I've tried this too with my students, and you know, you play them a clip and they say, oh yeah, no, that that doesn't sound bad to me. That sounds like somebody who's, you know, kind of going somewhere. And so I think, <laughs> yeah, but you get these generational differences. And so, which makes sense because if that's the way you, you know, if that's the way that people of your generation speak, it can sound positive. And then, you know, here I am like, now I'm feeling like an old person thinking, ah, <laughs> the kids are speaking in this way that, you know, I don't Well, I don't also you said like. adults don't like it, but there is some yeah. cutoff, right? Of like what, sure. what kind yeah. of adults we're talking Absolutely. about. Absolutely. And these are not, you know, it's not usually like, well, if you're born, you know, after, if you're born before 1980, you'll hate it. You know, it's not usually that clear cut. 
It's complicated. And it's, it's complicated, complicated by the fact that, as you say in the book, less so with Upspeak, perhaps, but, but mm-hmm. Vocal Fry is a great example that I have this quote here where you said, once a way of rebelling against the linguistic establishment, Vocal Fry seems to have joined its ranks. Because obviously, yeah. at some point, the people who are speaking in Vocal Fry mm-hmm. as their, you know, rebellious streak a la Cher in Clueless, Mm -hmm. um, then get a little power, then become the boss. And if they they haven't lost that, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever linguistic marker that is revealing of their character, then suddenly that's what bosses sound like. Yeah. And then probably young people will do something different. (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) It is kind of freeing and ridiculous that we grab onto these ideas just knowing that, like, there's going to be another train of them coming up. Uh Which leads me to one other philosophical question, which doesn't have an answer, but uh, but perhaps it's worth thinking about, which is that sometimes we feel an obligation in the coaching world, leadership coaching and with corporate clients who have, you know, a, a sort of a sense of what a strong voice sounds like, what they're going for. We're often in a position of having to tell people to, you know, learn how to speak without upspeak and vocal fry. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, because as you say, and I love the way you put it, uh, this is where the complexity comes in. Is there an ourselves, quote unquote, that is more us than the social markers that we've picked up? Like, are we more ourselves if we let go of some of those markers because we pick them up as ways to minimize ourselves in certain spaces? Mm. Or are they part of our story? And so letting go of them, you know, and and obviously there is not a one-way answer. Yeah. Right. There's not a one-way answer. And I think for me, the bigger picture truth is just how much our language, how much the way we speak reflects the social complexity of our lives. And so a big part of that is our childhood and the languages we learned in childhood when our brains were still, you know, malleable and ready to learn languages. And then a large part reflects our social ambition and our social changes and our new social worlds. And so I think it's really hard to turn any of that off. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk about some of the specific things we can turn off and that we're doing without even knowing it. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like ah, being transported to a tropical island retreat. 
imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb. Tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. We're back. And actually, I'd love to step back for a second and ask how all of this work that you've been doing for, you know, over a decade now, but specifically um, for this book, uh, has made you think about your own voice. So one important thing that we can all think about, but I think, you know, I grew up in New York a little bit, but a lot of mostly in Connecticut, which is part of the region where people often say that they don't have an accent and other people have an accent. And so you see this, like, which doesn't make logical sense. So everybody has an accent. I mean, it's even, so, it's so beautiful, yeah, right? I mean, it's yeah. so, it's such a, it's such a human thing to do. Yeah. And so even people who speak a sign language have a manner, have a, have an accent. Um, so, you know, everybody has an accent. Will you actually define in this case, what, what you mean by an accent? Sure. So a manner of pronunciation, you know, a pronunciation. So the way that you say your words, the sound of your words. Um, and of course, for, for signs, they don't have a sound, but they do have a manner of pronunciation in a way that feels very, akin, like the same idea. And then I see this in, you know, in my colleagues and friends and, you know, people from childhood, just that it's so easy to think about accents as a gradation from the self. So like somebody who has, oh, but somebody, you know, who really has an accent. <laughs> well, but what does that mean again? You know, because everybody has an accent. And so I think when you're thinking about um, mastering a language that's not your own, that might be, you know, you could think about whether or not you sound like a native speaker. So you might use accent in that way. But I think when I think about, you know, how I grew up speaking or the amount of linguistic diversity that I heard, which was somewhat little. And that's something that I reflect on too, that I think that it's so important where possible to expose kids to different languages. And so I think about that, you know, living in a city or having two little kids, um, everybody has an accent. And also, as I talk about some in the book, even the way of hearing an accent, when you hear somebody and you think, oh, a strong accent or, oh, a weak accent, a lot of that is entirely subjective and about the listener, not about the speaker. And so much happens, I didn't realize until I read your book, so much happens when we perceive an accent that's psychological. It's just not about the sounds. It's not yeah. like I hear that accent, but okay, I can tell that sound mm -hmm. is actually usually that other sound. Okay, cool. I've solved it. But instead, mm -hmm. all these like new things come into play of I can't understand this person. Yeah. And so, you know, there's just these elegant studies about how um, elegant for the science, not like elegant about humanity. Um, right, right. In fact, possibly reveal, the opposite. You know, yeah, possibly the opposite um, about humanity. So, you know, people hear often what they want to hear, you know. So there can be studies of somebody listening 
to speech and thinking that because the person speaking looks Asian, that they're more likely to be a non-native speaker of English because a lot of people have this bias about kind of attaching whiteness to being American. And then that's not at all present in the person's speech. It's like you're bringing this bias or you're bringing this prejudice and then you could hear speech in a way that's just so laden with bias and not actually about what the person's saying. And then it also leads us into the credibility issue. So either yeah. we just literally shut down and we don't mm -hmm. think we're hearing somebody like you're like you just described, or I mean, the Trayvon Martin story. Yeah. So, you know, the story, this is a really, I mean, I find it just so poignant and heartbreaking that this is the story of um, Trayvon Martin, who was uh, who was murdered as an unarmed African American teenager, and um, you know, in the trial, uh, he was right before he died. He'd been speaking on the phone with a friend of his. And um, Rachel Jantel, and she was in the courtroom and she was speaking a dialect of African-American English. And, you know, she testified to the fact that, you know, Trayvon was trying to, you know, get away from the shooter and so forth, which would really go against a claim of self-defense. And evidence from linguists have gone and um, analyzed, you know, what happened in the trial and what the jurors said after the fact. And there's a lot of evidence that they either didn't understand her or just felt like she she was basically discredited um, because of the way she spoke. And her truth just wasn't heard in that trial, um, in the trial um, against George Zimmerman, the shooter. And it should be noted that the jury was basically all white. Yes, correct. So now these issues are really complicated and, you know, even linguists debate over how to think of them. It's not like there's a one size fits all answer because in some ways, thinking about a courtroom, you want to offer a way to translate speech so that everybody understands. At the same time, a lot of bias against language is not just this idea of, oh, was the speech comprehensible or not in this really neutral way, but you can see racism being so central to judgments against speech. And I think in some ways it can just be this really insidious part of bias where somebody can say, oh, I'm not being racist. I just don't understand this person, but they're bringing so much baggage to how they think about the person's voice. Well, and it really is, I mean, that story specifically is a real counter argument to um, my kind of, you know, sometimes Pollyanna-ish instincts of like, can't we all just be ourselves, you know, yeah. and I'm well aware of it. I mean, whenever I'm coaching people, I'm not just saying like, you know, however you sound with your favorite people when you're the most comfortable will work in every context. I wish it did. I think yeah. that there's a social justice element to that. Um, but, you know, the reality is when we are learning different ways to speak in different contexts, it is often because there are like power structures in play and like, do you, you know, help your friend who's been brutally murdered, uh, you know, find justice posthumously or don't you as yeah. all of 
the nation watches. I mean, you know, when the stakes are that high, like, I don't know, would it have been useful for her to have been coached by someone on how to speak differently? Is that even possible? You know, I mean, obviously the greater answer is just that like people need to hear better, but we can't always assume that they will. And I think that, you know, I'm, I would say that I'm pro language learning and that can mean a lot of different things. And so I'm not, I think that people who only speak English at home should learn in schools and we should have this benefit for our children to teach them different languages. At the same time, you know, learning as a child, um, you know, being bilingual in different dialects that you use in different contexts, being bilingual in different languages that you use in different settings, this can be really positive. And the more languages that people are able to master can be really wonderful in my view. But I think you have to do so in a way that's sensitive and that isn't teaching people languages because the one that they have is being devalued, but rather is seeing an advantage of having multiple ways of speaking in multiple contexts. Yeah, there is this concept that you talk about that I, I really, I think it's a useful label of um, of like linguistic status that we don't, mm-hmm. you know, that we all often have, the Americans have this sense of like, we like British accents. Yeah. Why is that, you know? <laughs> but, and we also obviously don't have to cross the pond before we realize that we have certain, you know, inherent biases towards as well as against certain accents. The British English example is so fun because um, you're right. We have this like British English status, loose stereotype going on in the U.S., absolutely. But what I find fascinating is that we also have often a close-to-home advantage in accent detection. And so telling apart different varieties of English in the U.K. to an American ear is very difficult, right? And so you might be able to hear you know, Minnesota from California, from New York, but you're not going to be able to pick out different regions of the UK, unless maybe you could because you're a trained professional, but I couldn't. But um, uh, no, the editorial yeah. you, so, yes, exactly. Yes, yes, right. So I couldn't. Um, and what's fascinating, though, I think, is that as an American, you could hear a British accent and think, oh, this person sounds, you know, so so amazingly, I don't know, British and educated or something. But it doesn't have to be one of the fancier British accents. So then if you're in the UK, somebody might categorize that accent as being not at all posh, right? And so I think that that shows how much of this is about the stereotypes we bring to the table and nothing actually about the actual signal value from the voice. So two other things. One is I want to um, call out that we moved very quickly away from what you think about your own accent. Um, (laughs) But I wonder if you think about um, what version of you comes out when you teach, what version of you comes out in conferences. I mean, on on some really Mm -hmm. practical level, this podcast is about public speaking. Mm. And so not only are you somebody who studies all of this, but also you are somebody who is, you know, in a sort of a leadership position where you get in front of lots of people and speak. And I wonder how you think about your own sort of style of teaching, maybe even, dare I say, before the pandemic. Right. 
I mean, although teaching on Zoom or talk, giving a talk on Zoom, I think actually raises so many other issues about how we present ourselves and feel comfortable on video and, you know, all this other stuff. I mean, stuff that's almost why I held it aside because yeah. I'm like, that is completely, I mean, agreed, yeah. agreed. But I think it's really, you know, I think there's all these fascinating questions about who feels comfortable in this new medium and who doesn't. Um, so I don't, you know, in some ways, probably like a lot of people I find hearing myself talk to be so embarrassing and terrible. And um, <laughs> well, by the way, as yeah. an expert, what yeah. is that? Because it's I true know, and it's, it's so true. culturally yeah. acceptable right. that if somebody said they liked the way they spoke, mm-hmm. we would be shocked. Probably. I mean, I don't know. I could imagine it, but I, and it's not. So, you know, I've been talking to a lot of people about the book and, you know, my mom asked me what I thought about some interview. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, well, did you think, you know, he sounded like this and you said this. And I was like, mom, I definitely didn't watch that. (laughs) (laughs) Are you crazy? (laughs) I have no idea. And please don't tell me. It feels embarrassing right now to even just like think about that. So probably like a lot of people, I, you know, I haven't listened to myself uh, on any interviews about the book. Um, I know, though, it's really good practice. So, you know, I've heard from people that even, you know, really famous orators, you know, often listen to tapes of themselves and you think about how they could do better. So it's not to say that at a cognitive level, I 100% think that I could do better and would learn <laughs> a tremendous amount by listening to uh to my speech, but yet I haven't taken up that learning opportunity. I will say recently I listened, I, I just read a transcript of myself on a podcast, and even that was horrifying because nah. well, if you look if you actually look at a written transcript, we speak in all sorts of weird ways, right? Completely, completely. No, transcripts are literally the worst. Yeah. And we all say so, you know and um oh, I way too so much. Many you know. But uh, yeah. when I had um, Amanda Montell on, who's written this great book called Word Slut, A Feminist Guide to Taking Back the English Language about Linguistics, uh, she pointed out that um, if we take our ums and our, you knows out, we actually come across as much less human. Huh. Interesting. Okay. So I was very human on the transcript <laughs> that I read. So I like your rebrand. There. I like what you did there. Um <laughs> Tell us a little bit, though, about because partly what you're saying with this with this idea of like listening back to oneself and 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 yeah. improving whatever that means, yeah. right? Uh-huh. Uh, is is I would love to touch on what we are actually all changing all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, on the one hand, learning a new accent really hard uh, without a without a trained professional like Samara yeah. Bay. <laughs> uh-huh. um, a plug I did not mean to do. <laughs> But, you know, that there's a reason why it's hard to learn languages when you're older yeah. and also that um, that when English isn't your first language, it's very hard to pass as native. But then on the other hand, there are these small changes we make all the time mm-hmm. when we're around people we like. Yeah. Will you tell us about this? Yeah. So, you know, I think you said it really well that there's this bigger picture. It's so hard to change. And yet... 
in subtle ways, we're constantly changing. And so if you're interacting with somebody and you like each other, your voices start to come together a little bit. And so you might not notice it as a lay listener. It might take a linguist to go in and, you know, measure exactly how long your vowels are and how things are spaced. Um, But you can see these subtle differences and they actually happen moment to moment. And so you're getting this, you know, kind of vocal accommodation and togetherness with the person you're talking to. So that's just the the one-on-one interaction. Um, Now you can imagine you move to a new place or you join a new social community or you take on some new social identity and that comes with a new social group and a new social world. And then your voice is going to change to match that social world that you're in. Because fundamentally... The reason we all sound different from each other is about wanting to fit in or is about belonging in an us versus a them. Yeah, it's about connecting and it can be really positive. It's about this feeling of identity and culture with your group and language is so tied up in that. So this idea of, well, why don't we just all speak exactly the same way and then there'd be just no more, you know, no problems in the world. But it's just not how humans Why work. Why don't we live and in a post-racial world are, while we're exactly, at it? You know? right? And so it's like, it's a, you know, it just doesn't, it's just not how humans work. We're never going to all speak exactly the same way. And so the solution, if we want to head towards a more perfect union, mm-hmm. um, I think of, uh, I think his name is Mike from chapter one, this idea of linguistic diversity. Yeah. Right? This idea, like, (laughs) will you tell me about him? Yeah. So, you know, this is the idea of somebody who, you know, has all this diversity in his life and, you know, his friends are from different racial groups and he feels like, you know, he's just really progressive. And that's great. You know, I'm not saying that he's not progressive or not trying to live, you know, his ideal life. Um, But he notices then that all of his friends sound the same and you actually wouldn't be able to guess who was who, like match the friend to the photo because they all have really similar educational backgrounds, Um, you know, just so many similarities among them, including the way that they spoke. And so, you know, in terms of these kind of real world solutions, well, one thing is to reflect on linguistic diversity and think of it as an advantage to be exposed to different ways of speaking as another. And I think there's lots of advantages to different forms of diversity. So it's not to say it's the only one, but also if you have kids, think about exposing kids to situations where people speak different languages. And I think that is a really good thing for children. Do you feel like there's sort of one social cognition study that everyone should know about, like that you wish were part of education or not even one necessarily. But yeah. do, you, do you feel like it would be so helpful if this stuff was introduced early? There, uh, my, um, mm-hmm. I have a researcher who works with me who uh, graduated with a sociolinguistics mm-hmm. degree and oh, they yeah. said um, that quote unquote linguistics has really bad PR. <laughs> That's awesome. That people don't know, you know, that like everybody thinks they're an expert in language because like they talk. Yeah. Yeah, so this is parents where parents, you know, particularly say white parents who come into the lab and their kids express some sort of a racial attitude or bias, like liking the other white kids. Now, they're very uncomfortable, which I think is a good thing and a sign of progress and wanting to understand, you know, how these 
structurally racist societies are seeping into these five-year-olds' minds, right? Where is that coming from and what we can do to address that? That's really important and it's good that parents are uncomfortable and want to change it. However, it's a serious contrast when a kid comes into my lab and, you know, I had this study where they were white kids and they were um, evaluating people who looked white or looked black and spoke in a native or a foreign accent of English. And when they expressed a preference for the white people, parents were just deeply uncomfortable, which again, you know, is is something that that as a society, we need to be deeply uncomfortable with. But when, say, they liked people who were black and spoke in a native accent over people who were white and spoke in a foreign accent, parents are just so relieved and say, oh, look, you know, phew, my kid's not racist. My kid, you know, just loves people who speak in English like I do. And so it's really reassuring to parents and it doesn't usually occur to people that kids might be expressing two biases, one that's about race and one that's about speech. And that what people's accents are is the more salient one, but that that's also a problem. Yeah, right. But, you know, it's also this like deeply primal thing, apparently, that we Mm -hmm. feel like we connect with people who sound like us. Yeah. And I think there's a way that that kid, you know, first of all, say that five-year-old is not prejudiced in the way an adult is. And I really believe that. Um, You know, they're still learning what society has to teach them. And unfortunately, a lot of that is uh, negative based on race and speech, Um, but they're still learning. But the idea that when a parent sees a kid expressing a preference for one kind of speech over another, and it's just kind of like, phew, my kid's just learning languages. There's absolutely no problem with it. That's the kind of then teaching that's going to facilitate linguistic prejudices growing with time. Right. Right. Because that is not, I mean, it, it, seem, it seems like what you're saying is that that is a stereotype that is completely culturally permissible still. Exactly. Why do you study kids yeah. to teach us about adults? Yeah. So, um, I mean, that's, that's why in many ways to teach us about adults. So, I mean, kids are important for their own sake, for sure. <laughs> um, and we can all agree yeah. with that. But a lot of why I study kids is because if we want to understand our social thinking and we want to understand our, cogn- our cognition about the world, Children can give us so much insight into how we think about things, sort of where our cognitive system starts out, and then how experience layers on top of that. And so I like to think about it as we study kids to think about the building blocks of later thinking and, you know, what we could do to change ourselves. Yeah, let's change ourselves. (laughs) Um, Okay, we're going to take another quick break and then we're going to come back and find out who you brought in for us. Okay. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. 
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Okay, so who have you brought in? I brought in Rachel Maddow. And tell me about why. So I've loved her show for a really long time. And I feel like when I'm thinking about who's credible, I find her credible. And I think she's really angry in a way that feels righteous and correct to me. And I think it's really hard to pull off angry. And I think she does so really successfully. And so, you know, I'd love to learn how can you be, you know, how can you be angry in a real and meaningful way and not turn people off? Because I think, yeah, so I'd love to know how she does yeah. that. Yeah. I well, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna listen to a short clip of hers. I feel like an answer to that question, mm-hmm. although it's not necessarily like um so here's what to do with your mouth kind of a thing. <laughs> but in terms of sort of mindset, I find that women tend to be heard when angry more, dot, 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 when um, it's very clear in both the content and in the style that it's on behalf of others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which just feels like there's all kinds of psychological data to back that up too. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense to me, yep. But whenever we're mad, if we can take a moment and figure out how we can speak on behalf of, mm-hmm. if how it's actually about something larger than ourselves, in a way, it's that righteousness thing that you yeah. talk about. That that ignites a sense of righteousness mm-hmm. because, you know, uh, there's certainly, I mean, I'm thinking of Rebecca Tracer's book, Good and Mad. There's certainly a, a history of like when any of us is sort of mad in our own lives, if we just yeah. dig a little deeper, it's probably because of some injustice mm-hmm. that thus, you know, we can say, oh, maybe this is something that isn't just happening to me. So here you go. Having a patchwork policy here, having some states where it's stay at home and some places where it's not, it's like having a, a, a pool where there's one section in the pool where it's okay to pee. It's like having an airplane where there's one section that where it's okay to smoke, but everything else you're going to call non-smoking, despite what all those people are going to smell like when they get off that plane. I mean, Dr. Fauci at least is saying, let's have a national stay-at-home order. Why don't we have one yet? The Surgeon General is going on the Today Show and saying, I think we should have a national stay-at-home order. Can I just tell people that we do, even if we don't? 
Yeah, she's so satisfying. So good. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, I was once told I coached uh, a man who was running for the U.S. Senate, uh, sort of did a one-day consultancy coaching with him. And he said at the end, I know who you remind me of, Rachel Maddow. And I was like at once deeply flattered and also like, wow, I am actually kind of nothing like Rachel Maddow. And I feel like he just has no other strong women in his life. Yeah. <laughs> like he has one archetype. Yeah. But it is useful to think of Rachel Maddow, yeah. I think, as a bit of an archetype uh -huh. for a lot of us. Because it's you're absolutely right. And in fact, I, I chose that bit because mm -hmm. you're you're right. I mean, she's furious, but she also has the sort of presence yeah. of mind and of spirit to be able to joke within that. But the joking is very pointed. It's not like yeah. to diffuse the tension. It's so spot on. And then I also listen to, and I, I have the feeling how much somebody who is not like me in many ways would be really, would not like her, right? And you, yeah. I, you know, and that feels so unfair. And it's like, I, I feel this, I feel a political divide too. I know. But that everything she says feels like it's so spot on and well-reasoned. And, you know, just that was a great example that she gets it and she explains it. And there's craziness in this world and she cuts through that. Do you feel like in your career that you have ever had issues with being taken seriously? So I think I've been fortunate in so many ways in my career. Um, and I've had the benefit of having really strong female mentors. And that's been really meaningful to me. I kind of sensed that from your acknowledgments in your book, I was yeah. wondering if that it seemed like, and and also that the people that you have coming up behind you, who you've you've hired as, um, you know, postdocs or research yeah. assistants or women. So I feel like I've had kind of a. Um, it's not you know not to say that uh, every step of the way has been perfect for sure, but I feel like when there has been a misstep or when there has been a time where I felt not you know, not valued or something was unfair that I've had these really strong female mentors that I've been able to go to and that I feel like are, you know, mentoring me and championing me. And yeah, I do want to try to do that for the next generation of scholars coming up for sure. It also feels like there's an element, tell me if this is true, that, that, whether it's sociolinguistics or this sort of more complicated interdisciplinary, that um, there's sort of a inherent reason why there might be more women in that in that field, or that we might be drawn to it because there is this long history of having to sort of understand these these nuances of social interactions in order to get ahead. I think that's possible, and I think that language is so personal to people. And so, um, you know, I do, I do feel like it's, it's a field where, um, people can really connect with it and it can connect with their own lives. Yeah. I love that. Thanks for doing that work for us. 
Catherine, thank you for speaking with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to meet you and, you know, talk about all these questions with you. And I should say, if anyone wants to enroll their kids in your studies, what's the best way to find out more? If anybody listening wants to participate in research at home with their kids, you know, you can absolutely sign up. So my lab is dsclab.uchicago.edu, though a lot of different developmental psychology labs just like mine are online now. And so there might be other opportunities too. But, you know, if you want to read about my book, um, How You Say It, and my research with my graduate students, you can find it there. Thank you to Katherine Kinsler for coming in, and we will have all of the info that she just shared about her lab and her research and her book in our show notes, of course, and on our website, permissiontospeakpod.com. And join me tomorrow on Instagram at permissiontospeakpod at 10 a.m. for an IG Live uh, with very special guest, Hadar Shamesh. She is a accent and English language coach for people all around the world. She has a massive and robust and loving and really exciting platform, The Accents Way. And we found each other across the world. She's based in Israel. And, um, you know, it's a real meeting of the minds and meeting of the hearts because both of us help people with, like, you know, the logistics of, of the sounds that come out of our mouths, but also and equally, if not more importantly, with a sense of power and freedom and joy around, you know, the sounds that come out and with, you know, finding peace with sounding different than the quote unquote standard. It's going to be great. We're going to have a lovely meaty conversation about accent bias in honor of Katherine Kinsler's episode. Thank you to Sophie Lichterman and the team at iHeartRadio and all of you. We are recording this podcast at various locations around Los Angeles on land that is the historic gathering place for the Tongva Indigenous Tribe. And you can visit usdac.us to learn more about honoring Native land. Permission to Speak is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Vision, executive produced by Catherine Burt Canton and Mark Canton. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? 
Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.